The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. Extended. Hi, this is Peter Johnson from Aerospace Radio Station Extended, and we bring you some of Europe's best guests. He's, he's been something of, of an unsung hero of the American space program, outside those who are, have made it their business to become aficionados of it. News. <laughs> some people will call you mad, some people will call you heroes, uh, uh, and everyone else is probably somewhere in that spectrum. It's uh, it's an amazing project to, to pull together from literally from scratch. And views. You've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and learn from that experience. And that's not an easy thing to do, Peter, learning from your own failure. So why not give us a listen if you want to hear about warbirds, aviation, and the aerospace industry? Come over and give us a visit. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Uh, I'd like to introduce now um, Barry Lennox, who's going to uh, tell us about uh, the... Uh, I don't know how to say this. Is it Command or Cayman? Command. Command, okay. I always hear two different versions. Command helicopters, uh, the Sea Sprites, which uh, uh, Barry was an engineer in uh, the RNZF, and then he went to Command. And um, so, yeah, he's got a fascinating talk, and we'll hopefully get this working. Oh, thank you. That's a hard act to follow. Both of you. <coughs> yeah. uh, my name's Barry Lennox. I don't recognise anyone here. They probably uh, all got older like me. <coughs> I, um, just a little bit about my history perhaps. I, uh, as a very young lad, I got involved in playing with model aircraft and uh, decided at one stage it would be fun to make them radio controlled as well. So I dabbled with that for a while to, with some success. It led me down a radio type electronics path over the years. Before uh, I joined the Air Force, I worked here in for a little while in Tate's, the radio telephone people, uh, fiddling around with these newfangled transistors. And then I worked for a, uh, a guy up in Sumner who made television sets, all valves of course, and he sold those to uh, farmers, I think, and they were retailed for the fantastic price of £250, which was a lot of money in those days. Anyway, in uh, January 1966, I joined the Air Force as a young radio mechanic. Uh, after 22 years I sort of dribbled up near the top and become uh, A3 and Air Staff, which was the avionics advisor 
<coughs> avionics staff officer. Um, at that stage, I decided I'd uh, change a career. I joined GCSB for about eight years. That was before it became a four-letter organisation in the whole whole of the country. Uh, I can't say much more about that, except that Waihopai was one of my very pet projects. Worked very well, and it's still there, though. I think it's changed a little. Then. I, uh, a long, complicated story, I was invited to go to Command Aerospace in the States as a uh, design engineer on the SH-2 program. Uh, it was originally for 11 months, but it turned into four and a half years for a variety of reasons. Anyway, that is Charlie Command. Uh, that was taken quite a few years ago, of course. Um, well, today, firstly, I'm going to cover uh, a little bit about the history of command, some of the other interesting and kind of bizarre projects they got involved in, and then also particularly the SH2 program, which most of you will know was uh, it's got a pretty checkered history. Anyway, Charlie Command, I met him once, very friendly chap. Turns out in the 1930s he was an aeromodeler as well, so we had a bit in common for a few minutes. Uh, a very interesting fellow with a lot of, lot of things going on in his life. Hopefully this will work. Yes, Charlie Command started with uh, the other helicopter company, Igor Sikorsky, in 1940. He uh, had a degree and his talents were very soon recognised and he became the head of aerodynamics at Sikorsky in 1943. However, both Sikorsky and Command were pretty headstrong personalities and didn't really agree on a lot of things. Charlie Command had some very strong ideas about how to make a better helicopter, and Sikorsky did not agree, and they, they split uh, quite acrimoniously, I gather. So he started on his own company in 1945. He borrowed some money from his family and started fooling around with his own design of uh, a better helicopter. Uh, along come the end of the war in 1945. You, uh, some of you may have heard of this thing called Operation Paperclip. Paperclip was um, an American initiative to take all the top German scientists before those damn Russians got them. And they were shipped, uh, there's about 300 of them all together, were shipped across to, to the United States. With a, and they had a variety of skills, missiles, rockets, aircraft, aerodynamics, engines, you name it. Anyway, Charlie Command managed to get hold of one called Anton Flettner. He was a, um, quite a talented aircraft designer. And he had actually built a helicopter during World War II. He built 24 of them for the Luftwaffe. Uh, it was the Fi-282. It's also called. They called it the Calibri. It's also called the Hummingbird. It was a very early helicopter, but it did work quite well. Incidentally, uh, you mentioned the V2s earlier on. Uh, Werner von Braun was the V2 scientist. He also came to the United States as part of Operation Paperclip. And that was hotly controversial at the time because there's a number of people, even today, who say that Werner von Braun was an ardent Nazi and a borderline war criminal. However, uh, the, the changing world lets these things happen. Okay, so there's the K-125, the early command helicopter. It bears an uncanny resemblance to the, to the Calibri designed by Anton Flettner. In fact, the only thing that's really different is it's got the stars and stripes on the tail instead of a swastika. Right? It's pretty similar otherwise. You'll notice a couple of interesting things about that, probably. There's no tail rotor. 
Okay. Tail rotors on helicopters are dangerous. If you lose one, you've got a big problem. They consume about 8, 10, 12% of the engine power, and they're just nothing but trouble. So Flettner had come up with a scheme where, there's, you can see, there's two main rotors. They're contra-rotating and they're intermeshed, and they're, they're spaced apart at 15 degrees and intermeshed so they obviously don't hit. And it does the way of the tail rotor. That first flew was a K125. Charlie Command had a, they're very ins easy to fly too incidentally, Charlie Command had quite a coup there, he managed to persuade a young housewife who had, I think she'd had about an hour and a half learning to fly in a steerman or something, a housewife, Anne Griffin, she hopped into it and took it for a 10 minute flight, no problems whatsoever. So at that stage that was a huge publicity coup and capital and orders started to flow in. So they built a couple, the K225 is virtually the same, just tarted up a little. They, they made three of them, one for the United States Navy, two for the Coast Guard and sold them for uh, $25,000 a piece. Uh, according to Charlie Command, he did pretty well out of that. However, the orders were now coming in because this, this new helicopter was, uh, showed a bit of promise. <coughs> anyway, move, move on a bit to the 50s and 60s. Uh, he built then this thing called the, the Husky, the 43. It was also known as a Marine HOK-1. They built about 80 of those, and the USAF took them as the H-43 Husky, about 250 built. You'll notice exactly the same thing again. No tail rotor and two intermeshing, contra-rotating main rotors. They were widely used, at least the US Air Force ones, were widely used in Vietnam uh, for firefighting and also aircrew rescue. Uh, about about 300 pilots apparently owe their lives to the to the H-43 Husky aircraft. It had a very very good safety record. Apparently, even today, it's the only military helicopter that's never had a uh, never crashed because of a mechanical failure. It's uh, crashed, as we say, the loose nut on the end of the stick being the pilot. But these things happen. <coughs> then, uh, the Sea Sprite, which is sort of the main topic of today. Uh, in 1957, oh, sorry, 1956, the United States Navy issued a contract for a new lightweight helicopter command built uh, by about 1957-12 of them called the HU-2. They were quite successful, uh, even though the early one had a piston engine in it, uh, it wasn't gas turbine at that stage. And the, the fundamental design hasn't changed a lot over the years. There was two disasters with this aircraft. The first was the Royal Canadian Navy were going to buy some, very keen on buying some for a large ASW, anti-submarine warfare contract. Command, for some reason, uh, instead of charging about $14 million for the aircraft, jacked up the price to $25 million, which immediately annoyed the Canadians, and so they, they dropped that. Even more disastrous was, in the early 1960s, President John Kennedy had uh, agreed to an order to buy about 250 of them for the United States military, mainly the Navy. Unfortunately, five days after he signed that, he was assassinated, you may all recall. LBJ, President Johnson, uh, took power the next day, and within a week he cancelled the order. And it pretty well devastated command for a little while. But that's the aircraft we're going to talk about today. Oh, incidentally, you'll, you'll notice this one has a tail rotor 
and a convention right on top. The reason for that is that Command Charlie was going to was going to propose his new Butte helicopter, and the U.S. Navy chiefs took him aside allegedly and said, "Charlie, ain't going to happen. We're, we're too conservative. We don't do no tailrider helicopters." That's the that's the anecdotal reason, anyway. I'm probably correct. He also, more recently, uh, built the K-Max aircraft. There's one of these flying in New Zealand, or at least one. Uh, again, you'll notice no tail radar, uh, two main intermeshing radars. Quite a novel aircraft. You can't see it from that picture, but the fuselage is very triangular. Okay? And the pilot can sit in there, and he's got a, a bubble window on the side. He can look out, he can view the whole ground. There's an extra set of engine instruments, torque meters, etc., just below the, the cockpit, so you can see that. It's widely used for logging, heavy lifting, firefighting, and it's also uh, been flown on a number of occasions with a big wrecking ball. So it's like a mobile crane to go and smash a building down or something like that. Um, it's an uh, interesting aircraft. Uh, they used to fly them quite a bit at, in Connecticut, where we were. Uh, they were experimenting with firefighting. They had something like a very, very high pressure, uh, basically almost like a syringe and it was filled with about 50 gallons of water. And they'd fly up to a burning building and inject this water at 2,000 or 3,000 psi into the burning building. Uh, they were experimenting with that when I was there. Interesting aircraft. Okay, various other oddities. In 1953, they built the very first um, helicopter drone. And I'll pass this magazine around. It's an aeromodeling magazine. There's nothing much in it except on the front here there's a picture of the, uh, the first drone. You'll notice there's a pilot on the ground in a make-believe control column and he's actually flying it, notwithstanding the fact there's a safety pilot in the aircraft as well. Uh, they built a thing called the K-17, which is a jet-tip-powered hello. Uh, it used a, a turmo gas turbine driving a compressor which fed cold air out to the wingtips. It, um, it was very noisy and didn't fly that well. They built this unique uh, KSA 100 Sabre. Has anybody heard of it? Oh yeah, this is a real weird one. It was a fairly conventional escapac ejection seat and it was designed with a whole lot of add-ons so that when the pilot ejected, some little wings popped out, a little rotor popped out, and it was powered by a small Williams uh, gas turbine. And the theory, of course, the pilot would eject and he would just carry on flying in this, this modified ejection seat. Um, it was supposed to travel about 60 miles. Um, they did quite a few drops. It never flew, uh, not conventionally. They did a variety of aerodynamic drops and it, it seemed to work out quite well. They did one powered flight just with a dummy and the, um, the engine was apparently too powerful. So you could maybe imagine the pilot flying, uh, ejecting from the aircraft and taking off at high speed somewhere. The uh, United States Air Force rejected it on the grounds. They didn't think it was viable. We'll never know. The K-16 converted plane was a Grumman Goose fuselage and a tilt-wing VTOL. It, was a, it had very good specifications that never flew. Uh, they did quite a lot of experimental work with it. One uh, that is still in use today is the Command Magic Lantern. <coughs> it's quite a large module, probably uh, about the size of this, that fits on a side of a helicopter, 
and it's a high-power blue-green laser and it's a, a scanning. And it operates from about 400 to 800 feet high in the helicopter and it works quite well in shallow, calm waters and it detects mines. Obviously the blue-green laser scanning and if a reflection comes back off something metallic or a mine or maybe a submarine even or something, it will uh, register as a hit. Uh, it's still used, it's still in development. Uh, it works very well in shallow water and calm water, not so, not so well in deep water. It was used extensively in the first Gulf War. Uh, it discovered quite a few mines that various people had laid. It's supposed to resolve a metallic object which is only the size of a baseball. Uh, apparently it does, though its performance is classified, so we don't really know. <coughs> Command wasn't just aerospace, it did a whole pile of stuff. Uh, Command, they had various companies, they, they merged, they bought, they sold, they merged, changed a lot. Command physics, uh, it's very hard to tell what they did. They were involved in nuclear uh, weapons and fusing of some sort. It's very difficult to get information on that. Command science, did a whole lot of programming, electronic warfare, and other uh, contract work for the United States military. Command electromagnetics make very, very large electric motors. Uh, sort of motors that are fitted to um, the DDX destroyer, uh, they're fitted into oil rigs. Most of the oil rigs that drill for oil, gas, whatever, the drill is powered by a command electromagnetics motor, very large electric motors. K-Matics made a lot of bearings. They had some unique patented technology and materials to make some very fancy bearings, and they were, for many years, they were prime supplier to Boeing. Uh, most Boeing aircraft use K-Matics bearings. Command music's a little bit funny. Uh, you make ovation guitars, and a number of people asked Charlie over the years, well, well, you know, you make helicopters, what's, what's going on with this music business? And he said, well, he said, for years and years I've learned how to take vibration out of helicopters, so I can easily just, just put it back into, into guitars. And they were very classy guitars, they were quite sought after, and they're quite expensive today. Two notable people that used them, <coughs> excuse me, were Glenn Campbell and uh, Phil Collins. Both swore by ovation guitars. Fidelco was again a very funny one. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> that was run by Charlie's third wife, I think. He seemed to be a slow learner with women. Uh, anyway, Barbara uh, was a lady that run Fidelco, and that's uh, German Shepherd blind dogs. And I, I've forgotten how many dogs they did train and, and develop over the years, but he developed a, he acquired a strain of a very, a very amicable German Shepherd dog. Some of them can be a little aggressive. These ones are very calm and steady, and they, they sent a lot of these out to blind people. <coughs> he was very generous and philanthropic on this. He would charge a blind person $150 for the dog, whereas the cost of training them was more like 20000 uh, That was uh, his humanitarian thing. Raymond Engineering was a little company which was about uh, 20 miles south of us and they had a lot of um, small small components, very high-tech small components. Uh, we employed a couple of them on the aircraft. They're, where they made a huge amount of money was in fuses. Modern bomb fuses, rocket fuses, 
the thing that um, prevents the bomb from detonating until the right time and then does so with a very high degree of reliability. They made a lot of money after 9-11. Um, after of course the Americans launched a huge number of uh, cruise missiles and all sorts of other smart weapons against uh, in the war on terror. The main thing was a thing called the FM, FMU-152 programmable fuse, which is a very smart fuse that sits on the weapon. The pilot can program it in flight. You can do all sorts of things with it. They made a lot of money from that. OK, here's the start of the Australian SH-2. <coughs> it had to fit on a 1350-tonne offshore patrol vessel, quite a small ship. <coughs> the existing Sikorsky Seahawk would not fit. It had to carry a long-range air-to-surface missile and the lightweight Mark 46 torpedo. Uh, Sikorsky aircraft not only fit, but also Sikorsky is very much out of favour. You may recall that the Australian Navy and Sikorsky had a real an enormous fight over the Seahawk and Blackhawk program, and we'll cover a bit more of that later on. <coughs> a two-man crew was required instead of three. That doesn't sound much, but it actually was a was a big problem. <coughs> Excuse me. All new avionics and sensor suite was to be fitted. There was a number of aircraft initially, but it eventually boiled down to the Lynx and the Super Sea Sprite. Uh, the Sea Sprite won on a number of reasons: cost, uh, performance, range, and uh, and load carrying ability. It's quite a bit better. The air-to-surface missile was the Kongsberg Penguin. <coughs> okay, what um, what really started to go wrong? For start, the two-man crew was a big, big problem. It doesn't sound like much, but instead of having a third person in the rear of the aircraft who's the tactical coordinator and the sensor operator, all that stuff now has to be shared between two pilots. <coughs> so all those controls and everything else has to be integrated, and it. It's a lot bigger task than you might imagine. And the all-new avionics and sensor suite. The aircraft was conventional, the engine was kept the same, the airframe was the same. They gutted the entire avionics suite and replaced everything. Those two goals of Barrett made a, a very ambitious project. Nobody else had tried this at the time. <coughs> and command was now the prime integrator. And while they had a superb aircraft and they knew what they were doing, <coughs> excuse me, they had they had never, ever integrated a task as complex in the past. In fact, they hadn't done much avionics integration at all. They built, normally they built the, the aircraft, installed the engines, had all the mechanics and all the, everything working correctly. Then it had been passed over to the US Navy, who put in the avionics ranging from something pretty simple, like a few radios, through to quite complex suites on the latest suite aircraft, SH-2G. However, now, command was going to do it all, and it hadn't done it before. Uh, the Australian DMO, Defence Material Office, issued a $660 million contract with no damages provision. There was no provision for, if things went wrong, they could get some money back. Okay. Also, we worked, the, the prime contractor for most of the, um, the mission computer and the display units were sub leased to Lytton, which is a firm in California. Um, they'd done some good work. They also, uh, there were some, some issues there. Deliveries were quite sporty. They were originally planned for 2001. 
So with all these things, what could possibly go wrong? Well, quite a bit. Nevertheless, the aircraft's quite good at the end, but <clears throat> there's a few things on the way. Um, th the first one is that the Defence Material Office had a pretty chequered history. <coughs> you may recall, that's the, the Australian uh, military procurement arm. The first one was, of course, the Collins submarines, going back quite a few years. That turned into a bit of a disaster. The Seahawk and Blackhawk uh, program with Sikorsky got extremely ugly to the point where they were they were about to unleash the lawyers before they saw common sense and managed to more or less get it back on track. C-130J program wasn't particularly well run. The Tiger helicopter is uh, problematic. Um, in fact, there was an article written by a retired Air Commodore uh, in 2011 and he said this about DMO. DMO's approach is like trying to drive a car by looking through the rear vision mirror with driving skills and competencies learned by making mistakes. And it's, yes. Okay, he's an air commodore and he's retired and he's a bit grumpy, but he's not too far off the truth, actually. <coughs> okay. The entire aircraft was gutted. All the instruments and everything else were taken out. It was replaced by two MDPs, mission data processors. That's a, that's a fancy term for a, quite a large computer. Uh, it was, uh, it's had four, it's got four boards in it, each with a Motorola 68000 mini computer in it. So there's a lot of computing power. The two MDPs, the two computers run in parallel at all times. They're both powered up, they're, they're sharing 100% of information in real time, so that if one went down, uh, the other one just takes the load. And that worked very well, because you could pop the circuit breaker in one and you didn't even notice. It just carries on. Four CMFDs, colour multifunction displays. They're like you see in a modern aircraft. And a CMFD is a colour display. You can, it can do anything. It can display comms or weapons or a flight page or engines or whatever. Smart display units are a bit like a, a bit like an old-fashioned cell phone. You can just enter data on those. The interface task was pretty substantial, and it took me uh, quite a long time to. Well, I become myself and a guy and listen sort of run that interface task. The problem was all the things on the aircraft, thermocouples, um, taco generators, all the, all the input transducers on the aircraft were not changed. So instead of driving a discrete instrument like the thermocouples that drive the TIT gauge or something like that, now it all had to be manipulated and massaged and converted and interfaced with a digital computer. Uh, there was about a hundred odd signals, and that, that took a long time to get that right. It had uh, dual or mil standard 1553 data buses, which is a medium speed uh, data bus, plus A ring 429, which is a, a commercial uh, Boeing uh, data bus, and a fiber optic data bus. So it's pretty sophisticated for its day. Uh, because the Australians decided that they wanted two crew, um, now they said, well, yeah, that's a lot of work for two pilots, so <coughs> there was a very strict HOCAS, which is hands-on, collective and stick. So the pilot in flight, or the crews in flight, had to do everything with their hand on the cyclic and the control grip on the main stick. Okay? They weren't to take their hand off and, and operate this knob and do this and that and the next thing. So now you can imagine there's an awful lot of switches, knobs, buttons, levers, potentiometers, etc, etc, on the control groups, and we'll cover that in just a minute. 
Only traditional instruments were left in the A-frame, were, were actually brand new ones, but they were a clock, compass, altimeter, and a standby ADI. Everything else was entirely glass cockpit, electronic, controlled by two pilots, uh, a bit like playing a piano accordion. <laughs> What we actually had fitted was um, two VHF, UHF multiband radios it's, uh, with SATCOM facilities. It's a thing called the ARC 210, made by Rockwell Collins. Uh, the HF 9000 was a 200 watt HF transmitter with a uh, secure voice module attached as well. Uh, Rockwell Collins commercial units were the ADF, VMR, ILS, UHF, DF, uh, Honeywell APX 100, IFF system, transponder with mode 4 installed, that's the crypto uh, secure mode. Uh, DRS Technologies had the cockpit voice recorder and flight data recorder, and that's a pretty interesting gadget, we'll get on to that in a minute. Had a couple of uh, Litton made uh, inertial GPS systems, that had chaff and flare <coughs> dispensers, electronic countermeasures, electronic surface measures, a radar, a forward look infrared system, Link 11 data pink, uh, Link 11 data link and the AGM 119. You might appreciate that's an awful lot of new stuff to put in one aircraft in one hit and and um, and plan on it all working on day one. Uh, needless to say, it doesn't. <coughs> okay, what was happening in the trenches? The integration, as you might expect, was actually quite complex. Uh, a number of problem areas. Money was getting short. First few days in the, or first few weeks in the project, oh, money's no object. Yeah? We spent up with parties and we, we had big trips across to uh, California to see Lytton and, and, and there was 40, 40 odd of us went and they only needed five. And, and everybody had a rental car and everybody had a flash hotel suite. And oh, was, <laughs> this is so much fun and so much money. Well, that, that soon changed, as you might imagine. The aircraft weight was going over the contract. Uh, what had happened, seemingly, apparently, was that uh, one of the reasons why they somebody forgot about the weight of wire and connectors. That's, that's sort of what was... Uh, never got to the bottom of it, but that seems to be the case. But you pick up a, a reel of wire and you know that you, you ought not to forget that weight. Eventually, of course, Lytton walked away. They defaulted on the fixed-price subcontract. Uh, by February 2002, the Australian Defence Material Office had paid 80% of the money out. There was no provision for damages. They had no way of getting their money back. They just had to hang in there and hope that something good was going to come out of it. Of course, eventually, the Australian Navy uh, came up with a whole pile of reasons. And, and at this stage, because of some changes in the Australian Defence System, they, they didn't really need this helicopter anymore. Um, so it was going to be used for uh, search and rescue up and down the east coast particularly and also pilot training and, and, uh, and training pilots to land helicopters on ships. It was, it, its role had changed substantially. So they came up with a, a bunch of reasons, <clears throat> some of which were bogus. Some of, you know, I got involved in an argument over IFF mode 4. What, what happens if it fails? Well, the standard procedure is you get out of there real quick. You get out of the area because you could get shot down. If you can't electronically be interrogated and prove you're friendly, you're, you're possibly a threat and you could get shot down. So you go away. Oh, no, that, and then they started going about airworthiness, 
the quality of data, the quality control system, the crashworthiness. We didn't fully appreciate it at the time, but there's a dispute between uh, the Australian Air Force regards itself probably correctly as the, the master of all things in the air, uh, particularly airworthiness matters. Uh, the Australian Navy had different views and there was, there was a head butting going on there as well. Uh, we, there was the odd technical problem, there was uh, the flight data, the air data computer, which is a fancy pedostatic system, had some problems and it would occasionally, in the hover, it would drop the aircraft 40 feet, which really made the pilots change their underpants, because if you're at 45 feet and you suddenly drop to 5 feet, it makes, makes you a little nervous. Uh, they complained about the landing gear strength, the increased weight, well that was an obvious one. Um, there was a drift in the INS GPS, nothing significant, but there was a whole bunch of reasons Australians, but fundamentally I think they didn't really want the aircraft anymore. So eventually in March 2008 it, um, it was terminated, finished, game over. Uh, the guys I knew well at from command who were working in Australia at that stage, they were sent home, the aircraft were returned to command. It cost the Australian taxpayer a billion dollars, which is a bit of money. And as you'll probably well know now, eight of the aircraft have been purchased by the New Zealand Air Force and Navy. We find them pretty satisfactory. And I don't know what they paid for them, but I, my most reliable source suggests somewhere between 100 and 150 million. Now that money did go back to the Australians uh, via command who probably took a bit for ticket clipping or something, but you can probably say this whole debacle cost the Australians uh, 900, 900 million dollars. Well, it's only money. Okay, so that's of what happened, it was pretty interesting, but despite all those things, the aircraft today is pretty good. It's, uh, for its size and weight, there's few others in the world that'll come close to its performance. I mentioned this thing called the cockpit voice recorder and flight data recorder, and you'll also recall this, uh, the, the terrible case of this um, MH370, the missing aircraft. Nobody knows where it's gone except it's gone somewhere. Uh, putting aside the conspiracy theories about the oil in Russia or something. This is an interesting solution. And it works very well. <coughs> it's made by a Canadian company called DRS Technologies. I spent a lot of time up there working with them. They're pretty talented lot. It's the EAS 3000. Uh, actually what it is, it's a, if you ever see a modern C-spike, you'll see this orange thing on the side of the fuselage. It's probably that diameter and it's about, um, about 125 millimetres thick. It's, uh, it's mainly packaging, armour and Kevlar and fibreglass and foam and lots and lots of stuff. There's some electronic modules in there. What it does is that the 1553 data buses on the aircraft are connected to it. So all the time it's recording cockpit voice recorder, records the last 30 minutes of cockpit voice and records several hours of flight data records. Okay? And it's taking them off the data bus at a rate of about four a second, or sometimes one a second, depending on what the, the thing is. It's also recording the aircraft position from the inertial GPS system, and that's being stored in a little memory module about the size of a packet of cigarettes. So if anything happens, and it's fired, there's four things that'll throw this thing off the aircraft. It's thrown off by a very, very large spring and it's held in place with a latch, and there's something like a, a pistol cartridge that fires it. 
There's four things that will trigger it. <coughs> About six metres of water pressure, uh, two crash switches, which is just like a light bulb, you break them and that fires it off, or the crew can also push a button to eject it. This very large orange frisbee flies off at that stage. It's holding all that aircraft data, it's holding the last aircraft known position, and it immediately starts transmitting. It transmits on 406625, which is the COSPAS SARSAT emergency beacon frequency. It's also got auxiliary transmitters on the two old uh, analog frequencies so that a homing aircraft in the last three, four hundred metres can find, the, find this beacon. It's fitted to some high-performance combat aircraft. It was fitted to an F-18, and there was one crash in California where an F-18 went into the uh, Sierra Madre Mountains above California, and this thing fired off the tail of the aircraft. It was different. It was a, an aerofoil-shaped thing built into the, into the horizontal stabiliser, so as soon as the nose of the aircraft hit, it fired this beacon off backwards. And of course, it immediately starts squawking all this information. And of course, it holds the cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder. And it worked well. So you can imagine uh, if these things were fitted to something like MH370, as soon as the thing went under the water, it would fire this beacon off, which would be floating around the ocean quite happily. It would be transmitting its position. It would not only, it would entire 30 minutes of cockpit voice, it would have flight data recorder for several hours. It would also tell you the last known position of the aircraft, because the beacon would be drifting, of course, so the, the two positions would be different, but you'd know where the aircraft hit the water. So it would solve the problem. So why, why are these things fitted to commercial aircraft? I don't really know why, except for cost. This, it's quite an expensive solution. I, I think it was in the order of uh, fifty to $60,000 for this system installed, um, where you can get a cheap beacon for maybe two to 3000 so I, I guess it's simply cost. But when you look at the immense amount of money that's been spent on looking for this aircraft, this would have been a bargain, really. Oh, incidentally, I, I work sometimes on the New Zealand aircraft and sometimes on the Australian aircraft, mainly the Australian. The New Zealand initial aircraft was, um, was relatively simple. It was the old US Navy fit, pretty much the same. The new systems were not many. We put in the ARC 210 radio again, the HF 9000 secure voice, uh, again IFF with mode 4. It employed Doppler instead of inertial and, <coughs> and GPS. It had a quite small SARSAT beacon sort of thing you'd almost buy in uh, hunting the fishing shops. Did have chaff, flare, radar. It had a different infrared system, a much cheaper one, uh, not as capable, of course. Instead of the Penguin missile, they used the AGM-65 Maverick, uh, which is an interesting device. And I, I spent a lot of time with that, integrating it into the aircraft avionics and getting the video correct. That it was, um, it wasn't too difficult. And we actually got a lot of help from the manufacturer as well. It's an interesting missile. So that's that's the New Zealand aircraft. Those aircraft now, of course, have been sold and they've been sent back to command, who have now resold them to Peru. Okay, So the New Zealand Air Force got a little bit of money back from this, which went towards getting the bargain once from Australia. So it's, it's been going round, 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 a little here. 
That's the uh, AGM-65 Maverick missile. It's got an imaging infrared seeker in the front. What it, it's looking for a transition of hot and cold. And like, for instance, a tank or a ship will always have a hot part and a cold part. And it looks for that border. And that's all it wants to know about. It's, and when it's fired, it just keeps going. It's going for that, <coughs> that intersection of hot and cold. Its weight's about 220 kilograms, 57 kilogram warhead. Speed's about 620 knots. Uh, range is about mm, 20, 25 kilometres. That's classified exact figure. It's pretty accurate. Uh, they've used a lot of them, especially in the Gulf War and after 9-11. They've used about 5,900 now. A pretty high success rate. 90% is very high. And it's relatively cheap, depending on how you buy it and what sort of deal you can work up. It's between about twenty and 90,000 dollars. <coughs> So that's the Maverick. The Australian Penguin is, is quite different. Um, it's much more expensive. It's uh, at least ten times as expensive and not much better. So that's the Australian way. We spend money. It's 385 kilograms. It's got about a 100 kilogram warhead. Speed and, and accuracy is about the same. It's got a greater range. It goes out to about something like 35 plus kilometres. It's, as far as I can determine, it's never been used in anger. Uh, they fired test ones, of course, but I don't believe it's ever been used. Uh, it is, however, quite smart. Maverick uh, is kind of dumb. It just it knows where that hot and cold transition is, and it's just going straight for it. Penguin uh, is programmed initially. The pilot can program the target in advance and it does its terminal homing by infrared. It can do all sorts of interesting things in flight. It can uh, turn through 180 degrees. It can, uh, it can change course on any number of occasions. It can do a dive or bunt attack on the target, all designed to confuse the, the target, of course, what's going on. It can almost do an aerobatics display on the weight of the target. But it's much, much more expensive. And that, of course, now the penguin is fitted to the the New Zealand aircraft. Okay, that's, that's the Maverick missile there. Oh, look. There am I, standing beside it. That's, um, that's a real missile, but obviously it doesn't have a warhead or a motor fitted to it. There's a couple of company pictures. This is from the Raytheon uh, pictures there. That's the terminal stages of Maverick, and that's uh, the result. It's obviously gives tank crews nightmares, that sort of thing. Command did one test shot um, before this program got underway, and that's it there. Pretty poor quality photograph. They did fire two uh, real-life test shots out of the, uh, the U.S. Army test range at Yuma in Arizona. One against a uh, image of a tank and the other against an image of a ship at, at the whatever the range was, which was classified, and both were regarded as a 100% hit. Uh, so that's how, that was done several years before, and command managed to get hold of one and they fired one, and they uh, they milked that thing for all it's worth. They had about 10 chase aircraft, around <coughs> the pictures were taken from all directions, and then the fascinating thing is. When you see that thing fired in real time, that flash from the, from the rear of the missile motor, the, the boost motor, you can't see. 
it happens so quickly that you don't actually see it. But they record it, of course. Okay, some other things that Command's been involved in. Uh, this is, you saw that picture going around earlier. That was in 1955. However, uh, come forward now, this was taken about um, 2002 while I was still there. Uh, they've now got a K-Max and the guy is flying it uh, remotely. There's still a, te uh, still a safety pilot in the aircraft who flies with his finger on the button so that if anything goes wrong he can instantly take control of the aircraft again, but he never needed to. And they used to fly this thing for hours and hours and hours on the, on the airfield where we were located. It's called Project Burrow, and they were trying to sell it in those days to the Marines as a, a means of resupplying, constantly resupplying from a resupply ship to the forward edge of the battle. The theory is this thing's just going to go backwards and forwards all day long, and no crew to feed, just put petrol in it and kerosene in it, and it keeps going all day long. No crew time, no need to worry about anything. And it is working reasonably well. It's been used in Afghanistan quite a bit. And apparently it saved the lives of a, um, there's a US Army patrol out there and they got themselves in deep trouble. They were up the top of a mountain somewhere and they were being attacked by uh, some of the insurgents. They were rapidly running out of ammunition and no one could get near them but K-Max drone or managed to get up there and drop off more ammunition and, uh, and saved their lives, so they claim. That's another shot of the same thing. Yes, they did really use a, a, an off-the-shelf radio control hobby set, but it was modified quite extensively. It had a high-power amplifier on it, so instead of only being a few hundred milliwatts, they put out about 30 watts, so you got plenty of range. And it had a few other add-ons, but the, the prime transmitter, the, the guy in the front there with the white shirt, he was the pilot. That's what he was flying it with, with a, a radio control transmitter. That, that was flying for hours and hours and hours of their time there. Do they have to be careful that no one else is flying nearby with the same frequency? Well, with a, with good point. Um, they've, in the later stages, they've shifted across the spread spectrum, so you don't have to worry about uh, frequency clashes. But in the early days, they were putting out so much power, they had a 30 watt amplifier attached to it. Also, it's not obvious from that shot, that previous shot, they had a highly directional Yagi antenna. Okay, and that was, f the guy was following the aircraft with the antenna, so the, the received power was quite powerful, plus you had the gain of the antenna. So you'd, you'd have to really try hard to jam it. Besides, there's a safety pilot in there who was very nervously holding the button down, right? And the first sign of any issue, you go, well, I've got control. Take that radio crap away. <laughs> That's the first uh, first flight. That was um, about mid-2001. Mid uh, that was an aircraft that was supposed to be delivered. That was the very first aircraft that flew. And it was very much a, had a had a fair bit of um, uh, what we would call orange wire. All the all the temporary wiring we put in the aircraft for test purposes or modification or something like that was always orange, bright orange, so that later on in life you made sure that you pulled it out. Okay, so it had a lot of orange wire in it. It was bitterly cold, about minus 25, very very fine snow, and it's not obvious from that aircraft, but there's an enormous electrostatic build-up on the aircraft. 
Uh, Mill Handbook 481 suggests you can get up to 400,000 volts pull up on the aircraft. Um, we, we might have almost achieved that. There was sparking and flashing and uh, there was really a lot of electrostatics on the aircraft because, because it's dry, it's bone dry, and a very, very fine powder snow. Makes an enormous electrostatic fuel on the aircraft. I spent quite a bit of time down at uh, NORCAD, which is the US Navy test facility at the Tuxent River down in Maryland, uh, about 30 miles south of Washington. Uh, I did quite a bit of the ICOM nav IDN testing at command over infrared EMI, EMC, EMV testing, which is electromagnetic integrity, electromagnetic uh, compatibility, electromagnetic vulnerability was done at the USN test center. Uh, what they do is we take the aircraft uh, sitting on the ground, we have it all basically in flight. We, we cheat in some areas and we persuade the aircraft that it's flying. Also, all the nav aids are tuned into either beacons or test sets, and for all intents and purposes, the aircraft is flying except it's sitting on the ground. <coughs> and then they have very, very powerful transmitters, <coughs> and they hit the aircraft with an intense RF field at a number of frequencies to see what happens. And things do happen, and they happen quite badly. Uh, there was a number of uh, vulnerabilities discovered. Some were expected, some were known, uh, some we managed, I'd, I'd sort of fix them up on the spot with uh, things like ferrite beads and aluminium foil and some sort of first aid stuff and then we took it back to command and, and uh, did a proper engineering fix on it. <coughs> um, it's quite a good job really because when the highest <coughs> field they hit the aircraft with was 200 volts per metre which is quite an intense RF field um, and the US or well, the international standard for exposure at 200 volts per metre is five minutes in the hour. So we'd race out and do five minutes of work, then back in the crew room and eat donuts, drink coffee, talk nonsense. It's not a bad job if you can get it. <coughs> the New Zealand testing was pretty much an eventful. That took about two, two and a half weeks, something like that. The Australian testing turned into a, a near nightmare. <coughs> it was immediately after 9-11. And of course, as you may recall, in America, all all aircraft were shut down for a, week, a couple of weeks afterwards. We couldn't fly there. We had to drive down, which is quite a haul from Connecticut. Um, we got there, and they said, well, you, know, you guys are booked in for the next 10 days, but got a problem now because uh, we're getting ready to go and bomb Afghanistan and all the rebels on the planet we can find. And we're, we're doing a whole lot of similar testing on US C-17s, uh, uh, EA-6s, uh, and a whole bunch of combat aircraft. So they said, we've now got the shield and hangar, we've got all the transmitters, we've got the test equipment. You guys can, uh, you, you can stay here and work. There's a shift from 11 at night till 7 in the morning, and you're on that one. So that changed things a little bit. Um, the other problem was getting into the base. Prior to that, you could drive into the Tuxent River. I just show my my pass, and it took me about a minute to get through the gate. Immediately after that, the Americans, of course, went a little out of control, and there was something like four or five hundred Marines, all fully armed with every weapon you can imagine, guarding every gate. To get into the base in the morning took two hours. Some mornings, as they would want to. They check every car, they stuck a mirror under the car to make sure he didn't have bombs or terrorists hanging underneath. They'd open up the, the boot, make sure he had nothing in there. They wanted to look in the engine compartment. They wanted to look at <coughs> your passes. 
<coughs> and of course, because I was an alien, I had special attention paid to me. I had extra passes and all this. It, it was a very, very difficult time. We got through it, and the aircraft turned out <coughs> excuse me, reasonably well. Okay, that's, uh, we're just about, I'm conscious that some of you want to get away in a few minutes' time. <coughs> a little bit on Connecticut, where we were. It's quite a small bay, uh, quite a small state. It's the second smallest state in America. Land area is 1 19th in New Zealand, 3.7 million. It was admitted to the Union in the United States way back in 1788. There's a lot of defence industry there. Okay? It's a home to not only command, Sikorsky, which is a much bigger uh, helicopter manufacturer, General Dynamics, who make aircraft and ships and submarines, Atomic Boat, make obviously uh, nuclear submarines, <coughs> Hamilton Standard, the propeller folks, Pratt & Whitney, big engine manufacturer, they're all based within probably 20 miles of where we were. So it's a, it's a pretty busy little state. And lastly, well, you can see where it is. That um, little tiny red blob over on the on the right-hand side there. Incidentally, by a means of comparison, uh, the, the land area of New Zealand is 288,000 square miles, almost identical to this one here, Colorado. So that, that square in the middle is New Zealand. You can see it's a, a reasonably large country. Okay, so that pretty well wraps it up. That's uh, history of command, some of the other oddities and projects and bizarre things they've got involved in. Uh, quite an unusual company. They, the peak number of people there when I was there, in fact I think forever, is about 800 people, which by American standards is a pretty small company. Okay. So, I don't know if we've got time for any questions. Yep. Any questions? Sorry, I. Charlie Command. He was American born, I take it. American born? Mm. Oh, yes, most certainly. Sorry, I, I got a bit of a hearing problem. I don't believe so. No, I believe his parents were born there uh, in the United States. Um, I'm not sure about that, but most definitely Charlie was born in the States. Oh, you're thinking of Kamov? No? That's a Russian helicopter company. Mm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that Charlie was born in the States. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, not sure about his uh, previous pedigree, I just don't know. There were so many Russians involved in American helicopter company, early, early company, so I just wondered if he was... Uh, as far as I'm aware, maybe not. Uh, Command had no contact ever with, with Russians. Um, when, when I was there, we had some uh, Israelis working there, they, because the, um, the uh, EW, uh, sorry, ESM system, 
the electronic warning system for if you're, if you're painted by a hostile radar, the aircraft will pick that up and raise an alert that you've been painted by a hostile radar. That system was the AES-2000 that was designed by an Israeli company. As far as I'm aware, that's the only contact that Command ever had with foreign companies. He was, um, in some ways, a bit similar to Donald Trump. He really believes that America's the way. I'm not sure about that. There was, um, there was no, I don't recall any foreigners working at command ever. Uh, but it may have been in the early days. Like I said, Anton Flettner, the German, uh, was picked up as part of this Operation Paperclip. Yeah, there might have been some Russians there too. <coughs> I don't know. Helicopter types that they worked on with the two contra-rotating blades and no tail, do they sound different from a normal helicopter? Um, yeah, a little bit. <coughs> I could certainly, oh, I don't know if I can explain it, but I could certainly tell a, um, a sea sprite from a Huey, for instance, because yeah. Hueys are extremely distinctive. But yeah, I think even today if I heard a sea sprite, I can... I can, it, the other thing about sea sprite, of course, is <coughs> they fly on the rotor, on the, the servo flaps on the rotors. Okay, so the pilot uh, flies just on the on the servo flaps, which in turn move the the main rotors. Um, that was widely flown. They, they had hundreds flying with the U.S. Navy, and they uh, they thought they were pretty good. They, they, they couldn't work out the fuss. When the Australians started raising all this, oh, what about this and what about that? And, oh, we're unhappy about and blah, 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 and all this sort of stuff, and the quality and the, and the landing gear, etc. The, the US Navy said, oh, what's the problem? In fact, towards the end, the Australians wanted another AFCS, Automatic Flight Control System, Automatic Pilot Fitted, on the grounds that one would have been unsafe. <coughs> uh, the US Navy and, and the New Zealand Navy said, well, we don't understand the problem. <coughs> because if the AFC fails or goes to a hard over or something like that happens, there's a button on the control column you just press and it kicks off the, kicks off the AFCs. Incidentally, I, I didn't mention it before, but the two control grips uh, were developed because of the Australian requirement for HOCAS pilots had to do everything with a hand on the collective and the stick. We had, um, now you had to do everything. You had to change the colour multifunction displays, you had to select this, you had to do everything from the sticks. So we eventually, <coughs> we went to a little company down on the Connecticut coast and we worked up these sticks and we had a, a committee. We had four or five test pilots, we had a human factors expert, we had the command human factors guy who had previously designed cockpits for Big Mac trucks. Um, I suppose that's similar. Myself, I was the electrical engineer and did some of the electrics and electronics in it. And we spent, I don't know, thousands of man hours getting this right. And in the end, we developed these two grips. And if you ever get a chance to look at a cease bite, take a look at the grips, you'll find, and you count them up, there's 28 buttons, knobs, things on the two grips. And you almost had to be like a piano player to, to get this, but the pilots did like it. So you could do everything from the two grips virtually in flight. Take a look, you'll see it, you'll find it. So um, 
That's a masterpiece of complexity. <laughs> Alright, any other questions? Okay. Again. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.